Hello and welcome to episode two of Seeing Red. We are back following our season premiere last week and this week it's Bethan's turn to tell us about a case. Yeah, so today I'm going to be telling you about a case that's one of the most shocking things to happen in the UK in the 21st century. Something that I'm sure any listener from the UK and to be honest a lot of people from around the world will know about. But I wonder if many of us really remember the actual facts of the case. I didn't until I began researching. It was during rush hour on Thursday the 7th of July 2005 in London when the UK suffered a terrifying and life-changing terrorist attack. The incident was the deadliest single act of terrorism in the United Kingdom since the 1988 bombing of Pan Am Flight 103 which crashed on Lockerbie and killed 270 people and it was the deadliest bombing in London since the Second World War. Thousands of people were travelling to work on their commute that they did every day when, at 8.49am, three bombs were detonated within 50 seconds of each other. More than 50 people lost their lives and hundreds more were injured. This is the story of what is known as the 7-7 bombings. I remember this. Um, I think this is the first terrorist case that we've covered. Yeah, I think so. Um, but I remember, I think it was 2005, and I'd not long started work. I can't remember exactly where I was, but I just remember reports coming in mm. on that morning of this terrorist attack and it was yeah. only really a few years after 9-11 and there was that kind of air mm-hmm. of oh my god is this the start of an horrific terror campaign yeah are we there once again it absolutely is and i think because the world in itself was already feeling so fragile from things like 9-11 and the political climate at the time it, it really was this terror you know obviously it is like a terrorism thing but it is it was people were just absolutely petrified that anything could happen and social media was in its infancy then Mm. so it was a case I remember you know people were like oh my god I know so and so's in London Mm -hmm. today and it really was like anybody could have been involved in this and people would video things and have their own footage and stuff this was really starting to impact the news and the reporting yeah, so Absolutely. it would have been a very, very worrying time and yeah. obviously a very tragic time for yeah. the people whose, you know, the families that were left behind. Mm-hmm. And this is the thing, like for me, so I was 15, 16 years old when this happened, so I don't really remember for definite where I was or what I was doing when the news came in. And so when I was then properly researching this for the podcast, it really did shock me just how much actually happened. I think it... It's quite easy to hear like a phrase like seven seven bombings and it just kind of almost simplifies it too much and actually it's a really shocking shocking tale. Mm. I don't remember the details necessarily. I knew it was fifty something people mm-hmm. that had lost their lives and lots of people were injured, but yeah, I don't really remember much else. And I know that this is following this attack, the White Widow, Samantha Lathwaite. Mm. It kind of came into prominence. I remember you being obsessed with her when I first started working with you. She was married to one of the bombers, Jermaine Lindsay, Mm -hmm. I think is the name. Yeah. Um, And then she subsequently disappeared to Kenya and um, got involved in Al-Shabaab and all sorts. So she was, you know, she was portraying herself as this widow Mm -hmm. and she knew nothing of her husband's activities. But actually, I think she was probably in on it because she's gone on to do terrible things Mm -hmm. since. Absolutely. Hopefully that's not covering things that you're... No, do you know what? I haven't featured anything about her, so that's really good that you've kind of brought her up, actually, because I'd forgotten that she was kind of a link to this. Yeah, and she I remember she was paid by... The Sun newspaper did a massive interview with her Mm -hmm. and paid her money, and she used that money to get out of the country. Yeah. So, at 8.49am on Thursday the 7th of July 2005, three bombs were detonated on board London underground trains within 50 seconds of each other. Whilst the bombs went off at practically the same time, police were able to determine in later investigations the exact timeline. The first exploded on a train that was travelling between Liverpool Street and Oldgate. It was detonated by a man called Mohammed Sadiq Khan. The train had left King's Cross St Pancras about eight minutes earlier. Daniel Biddle was on the tube running late for work when the bomb went off. He was actually stood close to Mohammed Sadiq Khan and described seeing Khan's arm move quickly and then a big white flash. He was blown from the carriage and was helped by a fellow passenger who made tourniquets to stem the bleeding from his belt and shirt. 
but he ultimately lost both of his legs, his left eye and his spleen. Bloody hell. A 20p piece remains lodged in Mr Biddle's thigh bone and other shrapnel, including his door keys, were removed by surgeons. Professor John Tullock was sitting on the opposite side of the carriage from Mohammed Sadiq Khan. He had just returned from Australia a few days before the bombing and was planning to go home to Cardiff. He was carrying three bags with him and he was actually shielded by a hard suitcase that was by his feet. Whilst his left eardrum was perforated and shrapnel from the blast is still embedded in his head, he survived the blast. Wow. And that just shows the force of the blast mm-hmm. that, you know, loose change that is in people's pockets, house keys, etc., would have been propelled inside their body or inside the next person yeah. that was stood by them. Catherine Alwafi was on her way to a job interview when the blast happened. She was lucky to walk away relatively unharmed, but she was covered in blood and had injuries to her arm and thigh. A woman to her left was severely injured, and she later said when she emerged out into the street, she saw M&S staff doing their best to help survivors. She made her way home in shock. She collapsed in her home hallway and curled up, and it was only then that she realised she was missing one of her shoes. Can you imagine? She just made her way home. Mm. That was the only thing like she needed just to get home. Just in complete shock. Yeah. David Gardner lost his left leg and his spleen in the attacks. He was blown off his seat and onto the carriage floor where he drifted in and out of consciousness. As we saw time and time again in this tragedy, people just stepped up to help their fellow man in what must have been such a harrowing event. Jason Rennie, an ex-army officer, made a tourniquet for David's badly damaged left leg and helped him to survive. Seven innocent people died in this blast, as did the suicide bomber. The second bomb exploded in another underground train which had just left Platform 4 at Edgware Road and was travelling westbound towards Paddington. Not only did this bomb damage the train on which it was being carried, but there were also several other trains nearby that were damaged and a wall that was nearby also later collapsed. Shazad Tanweer detonated his bomb at the rear of the second carriage. Philip Duckworth described how he was thrown onto the tracks by the force of the blast and he drifted in and out of consciousness. He was actually blinded in one eye by a fragment of the bomber's shin bone. In the investigation later, Coroner Lady Justice Hallett said that his was an astonishing story and he actually reduced the court to silence. Bruce Lay, a professional dancer from Ipswich, was sitting reading a newspaper next to his dance partner in the same carriage as the bomber. He suffered minor burns, cuts and burst eardrums and he actually remains partially deaf to this day. He held the hand of Fiona Stevenson until she died and said, I tried to comfort her. Andrew Brown blacked out for 15 minutes after the blast. When he came round, he first thought he'd been electrocuted and only realised how badly wounded he was when he tried to stand up to try and help other people in the train. He said, As soon as I was conscious, I became aware of people moaning and calling for help. Ultimately, he lost a leg. Martine Wiltshire was just feet away from the bomber when the device went off. She said, I recall a white light in front of my eyes and a feeling of being thrown from side to side. And off-duty police officer Elizabeth Kenworthy helped her stem the bleeding by giving her a belt to apply as a tourniquet. Martine lost both legs in the blast and she wept as she told the inquest how she owed her life to Elizabeth. So a nice ending to her story is that she actually competed in the London 2012 Paralympics. Wow. So I thought that was quite amazing. Really inspirational person. Mm -hmm. So in this second blast, there were six victims and the bomber. The third bomb was detonated on a London underground train travelling southbound from King's Cross St Pancras to Russell Square. It was detonated approximately one minute after the train left King's Cross, by which time it had travelled about 500 yards. The explosion occurred at the rear of the first car of the train and caused severe damage to the rear of that car, as well as the front of the second one. The tunnel it was in also sustained damage. The bomber this time was called Jermaine Lindsay. Piccadilly line operator Thomas Nairn was the first to enter the carriage after he heard an almighty bang. He put the emergency brakes on after hearing this metallic bang aboard his train. He tried to make a mayday call on the radio, but it wasn't working. He then tried to address his passengers over the public address system, but this wasn't working either. He entered the carriage and shone his torch around and described the scene that he was faced with, saying, I could see a sea of faces. I could see they were blackened and their hair was kind of on end and frizzy. He then took measures to check that the track was not live and stayed with injured passengers while another driver who was in the cab with him led the wounded along the track back to Russell Square. 
Paul Glenister's clothes were blown off his back in the blast and his leg was severed from his body. Thomas Nairn used his belt to apply a tourniquet to Paul's leg and Paul was worried that if the passenger stayed in the tunnel, they might not be rescued. So he picked his leg that had been blown off and began hopping away from the train. Sometime later, four police officers came across him and they put him on a stretcher to carry him the rest of the way along the tracks. How can you even move? I know. It's incredible, isn't it? I suppose that's why, because you're just, you're going into shock. Yeah, you've got adrenaline. Yeah, you're not processing Mm -hmm. what's happened. It's that fight or flight and it's like, I've got to get the hell out of here. And he was like, we need to get out of the tunnel, we might not get rescued. Yeah. He was taken to St Thomas's Hospital and had major surgery performed on his limb. Gil Hicks lost both legs in this blast, but managed to save her own life by tying tourniquets to her severed limbs. She thought she was having a heart attack when the bomb exploded, then she passed out, and when she woke up she discovered her injuries. Incredibly, she ripped her own scarf in half and tied the pieces around what was left of her legs and led with them elevated over the armrest of another seat before she was rescued. She was praised by the coroner at the inquest for her indomitable spirit. Alison McCarthy also passed out when the bomb went off. She woke up with her feet embedded with glass and she was covered in injured people and bodies. But she went on to help fellow passengers by again applying tourniquets into their wounds and keeping them conscious through conversations. She said, it just didn't occur to me to leave. I think the horrific thing, it's, you know, obviously what's happened is absolutely terrible, but with it being sort of like a hundred feet below ground in central London, which can be really busy in the rush hour, help is going to take some time to get down to the underground. The amount of help that you need to get there is not going to get there quickly. And it would have been pitch black because obviously when you're going through the underground, the only reason you can see anything is because there's lights. It's underground well I was going to say that's the thing when you're talking about it I'm imagining the bomb going off at a station because when you picture the underground Mm -hmm. you kind of picture a station but of course it would have been in a tunnel and like you say the only light when you're in the tunnel really is from the actual train itself and And the train's blown up the lights have gone off yeah the electrics have gone Paul Mitchell actually said that the carriage was crammed that morning and like you said it's the underground it's the morning it's rush hour He said that he saw an extremely loud pop and a very bright yellow light. He also said it happened so quickly. There was complete and utter pandemonium. There were people screaming. I thought my hair was on fire. I was thrown to the ground with such force. Fellow passenger Julie Gruen provided her coat and a tourniquet was formed and a sanitary towel was passed along the carriage which was applied to Mr Mitchell's leg to stop the bleeding. He said, I had lost a lot of blood, a lot of tissue, a lot of muscle. They undoubtedly saved my leg. Can you imagine what it would have looked like down there? Oh, honest, it must have been. The scene of devastation. And the next quote from Julie Gruen, as well as she was helping Paul, but she also helped loads of others, and she said that it was some kind of horror film. Literally, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. She said that she recalled a huge fireball coming towards her and something horrendous had happened, but she just got on with looking after the wounded in the dark carriage. And at the inquest, Lady Justice Hallett thanked Mrs Gruen for helping her fellow passengers, saying, It seems as if your prompt action contributed to saving his, Mr Mitchell's, leg. If not, it contributed to saving his life. Wow. And I think with a bomb, you know, they're all talking about this kind of noise. Someone described it as a metallic noise, which Mm -hmm. is really interesting to hear. And they're talking about this white light or yellow light. And I think with a bomb, it's almost a sort of thing, unless you've been through that... We've seen it on films, we've seen it on telly. You can't actually imagine what it would sound like, what it would Mm -hmm. feel like when that blast goes off. And it would be so loud. Even if you're not got permanent hearing damage, you're going to be having a ringing... You're going to have damage in your hearing at that time. Just when you hear a loud bang, you almost go into shock for a split second of what's going on. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that's like times a million with, you know, the kind of power of it as well. Exactly. It's always a game of chance with cases like this. We hear about so often someone surviving a tragedy because they were late getting out of bed or or being caught up in something when they normally wouldn't have gone that way to work. And Professor Philip Patsalos told the inquest that he survived because he was sat in his favourite seat. So he made this journey day in, day out. He had two favourite seats that he would sit in. Which you do. That's totally normal human behaviour. He was sat in his favourite seat. And his second favourite seat was just inches from the bomber. So he believes that the reason he's alive is because he chose him to sit in that seat. 
Lillian Ajahi gave up her seat for another woman to sit in and that woman died whereas Lillian survived and she was able to help other passengers get to safety. But how would you feel if you'd given your seat up mm-hmm. and that person had consequently died? Yeah. I think it's almost like that, you know, the Final Destination yeah, films? Yeah, it really is. It really is almost like I had no control. It mm-hmm. was almost, I don't want to say destined because that's no, an awful but, thing to say but yeah. you know there's nothing you could have done that that was always going to happen that that's it. how you'd have to think about mm-hmm. it it was their time not your yeah, time yeah otherwise you'd, li- you'd live feeling so guilty mm-hmm. for the rest of your life which i'm sure they do but you wouldn't be able to get on with your own life no. at all this explosion took the most lives 26 people died in this attack plus the suicide bomber the effects of the bomb was greater on this final train due to the types of tunnels and the tracks that the trains were on. So you may have noticed that the first two, there were a lot less lives lost. So the first two trains were travelling on the circle line, which contains two parallel tracks and the actual tunnel is relatively wide. So reports have stated the two explosions on the circle line were probably able to vent their force into the tunnel, reducing their destructive force. Now, on the flip side, the Piccadilly line is a deep level tunnel with narrow single track tubes and this confined space reflected the blast force. So that's why it was a lot more concentrated. And that does make sense. I think I've been on the district and circle line and it's, it is a different kind of line. Yeah. It's got a different feel. The station is, you know, much more open stations mm-hmm. that it goes through, um, some of them anyway. So yeah, I can see that the blast, the force of that blast has got further to spread itself. Yeah. It's not as confined and as concentrated. And on a lot of them, it's a lot hotter and a lot more enclosed because that's how much deeper or how more, more narrow the tunnels are. And I wonder if when those bombs went off, whether anybody on the ground could hear that mm-hmm. underneath them. Yeah. As they're walking along the pavement, a hundred feet below them, mm-hmm. that's happened. Yeah. And the fourth and final bombing attack then took place at 9.47, about an hour after the other explosions. The city was on high alert and roads had been blocked off or closed by the police. The number 30 bus was actually going to divert from its usual route due to this. Up to 50 people had disembarked from the bus because of this route change. However, there were still a number of passengers on the bus and when Hasib Hussein detonated his bomb on the top deck, 13 people were killed. The bus exploded on Tavistock Square, not far from King's Cross. Subsequent investigations showed Hasib Hussein on CCTV moving in and around King's Cross Station following the first three blasts, and mobile phone records showed he had tried in vain to contact his friends. Vodafone and a number of other mobile networks reported failures due to their networks reaching capacity. Vodafone specifically reached capacity at 10am on the day of the bombings. The company was forced to initiate emergency procedures to prioritise emergency calls. And I guess, obviously, it's reaching capacity because everybody is in that area is trying to get hold of each other. Yeah. A conference was being held at the headquarters of the British Medical Association and the bus exploded right out front. Whilst the doctors attending didn't necessarily have their medical equipment with them, they were able to offer life-saving medical expertise to the public who were injured in the blast. The bus driver, George Saradakis, also helped his injured passengers... Seeing them in such an awful state shocked him and he was overwhelmed, but he stayed as calm as possible to help them. Louise Barry was evacuated from the underground earlier that day due to the explosions and took a bus instead. Sadly, she'd taken the number 30 and was burned by boiling radiator water and had to crawl through dead bodies to escape the wreckage. Oh, and I think, I'm sure I'd heard of that. I didn't know the name, but I'd heard of somebody that was evacuated because Mm -hmm. of it, got on the bus and was, I, I didn't know whether they died or were injured. It's terrifying, isn't but it? But horrific injuries, yeah. And I'm sure... So what I've tried to do with this case and when I'm sort of going through this is I've tried to find real stories about people but who have survived because it is already tragic enough and I wanted it to not be the darkest thing we've ever looked at. And I think it would and, just be regurgitating what's already yeah. been out there in terms of the victims and absolutely our sympathies go mm-hmm. out to them and the families that were affected and left behind. But yeah, I think this is the right yeah. tone for us to take. You almost need that, that positive side to this so that we don't just get completely destroyed by the terrorism. Yeah. And it's already brutal. Mm-hmm. This is already, one well, the most brutal case we've done. Yeah, it's definitely the highest sort of death toll, I yeah. believe, I'm trying to remember how many people died in the Denmark place fire, but I don't think it was anywhere near as many people, and definitely not as many people injured. 
and again with Louise Barry that's one of those things of just fate I guess she'd been evacuated she wasn't part of that explosion but then she we found herself caught up in this it's almost like it's going to happen you can try and run away from it mm-hmm. but it's going to happen Lisa French had actually decided not to sit next to the bomber, Hasib Hussein, because there was not enough room for her laptop as well as his rucksack, and we all know now this would have contained the bomb. She was sitting a few rows in front of him when the bomb went off. She was knocked unconscious, but miraculously, she escaped with just perforated eardrums, broken teeth, cuts and bruises. And obviously I say just those injuries. They are horrific, but it could have been so much worse. That's miraculous, considering. Mm-hmm. And she, if she'd have sat next to him... She'd She'd be dead. Yeah. Camille Scott Bradshaw was on a day trip to London for work. Camille and her friend and colleague Marie Hartley were caught up in the explosion. Camille suffered severe leg injuries and damage to her hearing, but sadly her friend Marie did not survive. After escaping the wreckage, Camille tried to find her friend in the courtyard of a nearby building, but couldn't see her. In the end, she looked at the pile of bodies and saw that her friend was dead. In her own words... I just remember looking over and I think in the corner there were bodies and I could see Marie. I knew it was Marie because I could see her hair, her bracelet and her arms. Witnesses reported seeing half a bus flying through the air and two injured passengers apparently told the Sun newspaper and Radio 5 Live that they saw a man exploding in the bus. The explosion ripped off the roof and destroyed the rear portion of the bus but the bomber's location meant that the front of the vehicle remained mostly intact This meant that the passengers at the front of the lower deck, including the driver, and most of the passengers at the front of the top deck survived, but those at the rear of the bus suffered more serious injuries. A number of passers-by were also injured by the explosion and surrounding buildings were damaged by debris. There's got to be a reason that the suicide bombers were always at the rear. So at the rear of the bus, at the rear the rear train Mm. car. There's got to be a reason for that because you'd think they'd want to kind of be in the middle and maybe when the bomb goes off, it would cause more damage. And in their own warped logic, that's the right way to do it. I don't know. And I mean, the one of the... The one in the train carriage where he was towards the back, he then did manage to damage the carriage after and the one he was in, so perhaps that was the reason. Mm. So about 700 people were injured and 100 of these people were hospitalised for at least one night. The total number of fatalities that day was 52 innocent people plus the four suicide bombers, so 56 lives were lost in total. The 52 victims were from many different backgrounds, All were UK residents and were from Britain, Afghanistan, France, Ghana, Grenada, India, Iran, Israel, Italy, Kenya, Mauritius, New Zealand, Nigeria, Romania, Sri Lanka, Turkey and Poland. One victim held dual Australian Vietnamese citizenship and one held dual American Vietnamese citizenship. The majority of the victims lived in or near London and their ages ranged from 20 to 60 years old. So it was just so indiscriminate. London was, as I'm sure we'd all expect and we probably remember, a mess. Reports began spreading out into the media that there had been six, not three bombs detonated on the underground. When the bus blew up, it was reported that there had been seven in total. And this was mostly because where the trains exploded inside tunnels between stations, passengers fled in both directions. So they were coming out of two exits per bomb that had gone off which gave the illusion of two bombs per explosion. And there was a lot of confusion within the London Underground about what had actually happened. So there were suggestions that the explosions were due to power surges, um, which did explain as well some of the people, like you said, up, up on the surface had heard things and they thought they were power surges. And actually there were power surges, but it was caused from the explosions, not they weren't just going off on their own. Um, there were reports that there was a person under a train And there was reports of a derailment. And obviously these two reports are true, but they were caused by the blast. They weren't individual issues. And it's almost like Chinese whispers, isn't it? It really was, It just goes from one person to the next to the next and then becomes really inaccurate. No malice in that, just the way it kind of works. Absolutely. London Underground declared a code amber alert at 0919 and they began to seize the network's operations, ordering trains to simply continue on to the next station and then suspend all services. A sign on the M25 London Orbital Road warned drivers to avoid the city. There was continuous news coverage of the attacks on BBC One and ITV One. It was uninterrupted until 7pm and Sky News did not broadcast any adverts for 24 hours. 
The television coverage was notable for the use of mobile telephone footage sent in by the members of the public. Um, so what we were discussing earlier, the fact that people then had phones that would record I mean, that was literally, that would have been on the cusp of, mm-hmm. of all of that. It would it have probably really been was, one yeah. year old or something. And traffic CCTV cameras were showing live images of what was going on as well. For most of the day, the London transport system was pretty much out of action. Probably quite an obvious thing that you would expect. The underground was, for obvious reasons, shut down. And Zone 1, which is like the centre, was also closed. Incident sites were evacuated and boats on the river were then brought into service to provide a free alternative to the overcrowded trains and buses. I remember that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Local lifeboats were required to act as safety boats and thousands of people chose to walk home or to the nearest Zone 2 bus or railway station, so further out. I think I'd have been walking. No matter mm, how far no way, it was, yeah. I would not be getting on a bus no. or train. And you'd be in shock anyway because, you know, if you're going home from work, you'd probably live in that city, mm-hmm. that's your home, those are your people, that's your community. I don't think I would have even got to work. I think no. this would have happened, I wouldn't have even got no. to work. I'd have just gone straight home. And you also don't know what's going to happen for the rest of mm-hmm. the day. Are they going to then target some prominent buildings within yeah, the capital? Yeah, exactly. And nobody's going to moan at you that you didn't go to work that day. No. King's Cross Railway Station was also closed. The ticket hall and the waiting area were used as a makeshift hospital to treat casualties. St Pancras Station, located next to King's Cross, was shut on the afternoon of the attacks. And all Midland mainline trains terminated at Leicester. So this caused a lot of disruption to services all around the country, obviously. Um, But I think it was absolutely the right thing to do. Just stop anything Mm. and then you can investigate. So buses did start back up at 4pm that day and most main railway services um, resumed sort of soon afterwards. And incredibly, this really surprised me, most of the underground, apart from those stations that had been blown up, resumed service the next morning. But I bet it was quiet then. Yeah, there's reports that a lot of commuters just chose to stay at home. And isn't it sad? It's almost sad when things get back to normal so quickly yeah. because, of course... That's just the way it works and they have to. But you do, you can't, it's almost like it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. And I definitely would have been the person not going to work that day. Mm. I needed to stay home and, and not go into the city. That must yeah. have been horrific. But also for those people who were brave enough or who were like, do you know what? We're not going to back down in the face of this. Fair play to them. What inspirations they are. That's the thing, you know, people still need to buy food. People mm-hmm. need to do their banking. So these people, these brave people that went to work the next day and on that day you know, ensured that London carried on. Yeah. And it's that British thing, I suppose, isn't it? That British... Keep calm and carry on. Yeah, absolutely. Security across the country was increased to the highest alert level and no other terrorist incidents occurred outside central London. Suspicious packages were destroyed, however, in controlled explosions in Edinburgh, Brighton, Coventry, Southampton, Portsmouth, Darlington and Nottingham. Now, whether they were actually things that they needed to destroy or whether they were I'm not going to say trigger happy because actually it was right to get rid of them but even if it was something that normally wouldn't be too suspicious I'm not sure but there were controlled um, explosions in all of those cities. I think you're right though because we've seen that time and again when Mm -hmm. when a major incident's happened you then hear of these kind of subsequent smaller issues and yeah I think had the major incident not happened Mm, they wouldn't make the news they wouldn't have Yeah, Yeah. I'm not saying they wouldn't have gone over the top because it's not actually going over the top. It was right, as you said, to act in that way. But but yeah, shocking. Mm. So a bit of a a side here. There were a number of tributes to the victims of the attacks. So the US President George Bush visited the British Embassy the day after the bombings and signed a book of condolence. In Washington, D.C., the U.S. Army Band played God Save the Queen outside the British Embassy in the city. Flags were ordered to fly at half-mast across Australia, New Zealand and Canada. The Union flag was raised to half-mast alongside the flag of Australia on Sydney Harbour Bridge as a show of sympathy between nations. And moments of silence were observed in the European Parliament, the Polish Parliament and by the Irish Parliament on the 14th of July. A two-minute silence was held on the 14th of July throughout Europe. And thousands attended a vigil at 6pm on the 14th at Trafalgar Square, where after an initial silence, there were a series of speakers for two hours. So kind of back to the actual case, because within a couple of hours, the Home Secretary, Charles Clark, confirmed that the incidents were terrorist attacks and the hunt was on to find out who had done this and why. 
There was a lot of confusion for the police regarding the origins, the methods, and even the actual timings of the explosions, so sort of what we t- touched on earlier. The examiners originally thought that military-grade plastic explosives had been used with synchronised detonators. It soon became apparent that homemade organic peroxide-based devices were used, actually. The police examined about 2,500 items of CCTV footage and forensic evidence from the scenes of the attacks. The work identified that the bombs were placed on the floors of the trains and the bus, and investigators identified four men who they alleged had been the suicide bombers, and this revelation meant that these were the first ever suicide bombing attacks in the British Isles. The bombers were identified and named. Mohammed Sadiq Khan was the man who had detonated his bomb just after leaving Edgware Road. He was 30 years old. He lived in Beeston, Leeds with his wife and young child. He worked as a learning mentor at a local primary school. Shazad Tanweer was the bomber on the train travelling between Liverpool Street Station and Oldgate Tube Station. He was 22 years old. He was from Leeds where he lived with his mother and father and worked in a fish and chip shop. Jermaine Lindsay was the third train bomber. He was just 19. He lived in Buckinghamshire with his pregnant wife and young son that you then mentioned, his pregnant wife. And even younger than this was Hasib Hussein, the 18-year-old had lived in Leeds with his brother and sister-in-law. Mohammed, Shazad and Hasib had left Leeds in a rented car at about 4am on July the 7th. They drove to Luton where they picked up Jermaine and then they continued on their way to London, this time by train. The four were seen on CCTV at Luton Station at 7.21 and then they were seen on CCTV in Kings Cross Station at roughly 8.30. Between 8.38 and 8.48, the three men entered the underground. There is a lot of CCTV images that you can see. I remember seeing them, yeah. Yeah. At 8.49, Tanweer, Khan and Lindsay detonated their devices and Hasib, the bus bomber, was then seen on CCTV in a boot store at 9am and then he detonated his bomb at 9.47. So will you come on to this? Because why did he detonate? They, so the three tube mm-hmm. attacks happened at the same time. Yeah. And then the bus attack happened like an hour later. No, I haven't seen anything that explains why. I and think he was trying to get in touch with them. He was trying to get in touch with them. And what I think possibly it was, was that he was supposed to be on something, but he, he didn't get to it or something, and then he chose to go to somewhere else, and he went on the bus. I, but I don't know that for definite. I think that, see, this rings a bell for me yeah. as well. I feel that he was supposed to detonate mm. on another tube train, but because, and something must have happened, and because then by the time he was ready to do it, the other bombs had gone off yeah. and it was all evacuated. It was all a bit crazy, I think, as well, so he then had to make a decision. However, we'll go on to this in a minute. There was another... Um, sort of attempted bombing where they did go three tubes and a bus but then it wasn't it's not clear whether that was in relation to it and they were trying to do the same thing or whether that was always the plan yeah and I think it's almost impossible to ever know for definite which way round he was supposed to have done this the four men were described as clean skins which meant they were previously unknown to the police or the authorities prior to the attacks Jermaine Lindsay was born in Jamaica and the other three were British-born sons of Pakistani immigrants. The reason for their activities was still a mystery and the investigation continued. So police sniper units followed as many as a dozen Al-Qaeda suspects in Britain. The teams were ordered to shoot to kill if surveillance suggested that the terror suspect was carrying a bomb or if he refused to surrender if challenged. And in the report on this, a member of the Metropolitan Police's Specialist Firearms Command said, These units are trained to deal with any eventuality. Since the London bombs, they have been deployed to look at certain people. And then, like I was saying, two weeks after the initial attack, formal bombings were attempted, but they did not go off, and the police came across the failed bombs at Oval, Warren Street and Westbourne Grove Underground Stations, and on a bus at Hackney, and this was on the 21st of July. And two days later, a fifth unexploded bomb was found in a bush at Little Wormwood Scrubs in London, but none of those were able to go off. So none of those went off? Yeah. So the police were still trying to investigate sort of why the bombers had done what they had, and they'd actually made videotapes describing why they had chosen to become, in their own words, soldiers. The police now knew that the men were Islamic terrorists and they also had some insight into why the men wanted to behave in such a horrific manner. The first videotape was broadcast by Al Jazeera on the 1st of September 2005 
And in this, Mohammed Sadiq Khan described his motivation and he referenced people that he said were today's heroes. The people were Al-Qaeda members, Osama bin Laden, Ayman al-Zawahari, Abu Masab al-Zakwari. Some of his speech included, I and thousands like me are forsaking everything for what we believe. Our drive and motivation doesn't come from tangible commodities that this world has to offer. Our religion is Islam, obedience to the one true God and following the footsteps of the final prophet messenger. Your democratically elected governments continuously perpetuate atrocities against my people all over the world and your support of them makes you directly responsible, just as I am directly responsible for protecting and avenging my Muslim brothers and sisters. Until we feel security, you will be our targets, and until you stop the bombing, gassing, imprisonment and torture of my people, we will not stop this fight. We are at war, and I am a soldier. Now you too will taste the reality of this situation. It is so chilling to sort of read his words and hear his words. He also said at another point, I myself, I make dua, pray to Allah to raise me amongst those whom I love like the prophets, the messengers, the martyrs and today's heroes like our beloved Sheikh Osama bin Laden, Dr. Ayman al-Zahari and Abu Musab al-Zakwari and all the other brothers and sisters that are fighting in of this cause. And another video was then broadcast by Al Jazeera on the 6th of September and it showed Shazad Tanweer and he was saying, what you have witnessed now is only the beginning of a string of attacks that will continue and become stronger until you pull your forces out of Afghanistan and Iraq and until you stop your financial and military support to America and Israel. Tanweer also said that the non-Muslims of Britain deserved attacks like this because they had voted for a government which, in his words, continues to oppress our mothers, children, brothers and sisters in Palestine, Afghanistan, Iraq and Chechnya. In August 2005, police and MI5 sources stated that the bombers had acted of their own accord instead of actually being led by an Al-Qaeda terrorist That's interesting. Yeah. I'd always thought they were part of Al-Qaeda. Yeah, so what they've basically ascertained was that there wasn't some mastermind abroad and... Whilst Al Jazeera had actually said that Al-Qaeda officially claimed responsibility for the attacks, the British government did another inquiry and they basically were able to say that the tape claiming responsibility had been edited after the attacks, so the bombers did not actually have any direct assistance from Al-Qaeda. And I think, you know, in a way they could almost claim responsibility by default that these men were inspired by their yeah, actions. exactly. There was some speculation about a possible association between the 7-7 bombers and an alleged Islamic cell in Luton, which had been ended during August 2004. The Luton group had been uncovered after a man was arrested in Pakistan with a laptop containing plans for tube attacks in London, as well as attacks on financial buildings in New York City and Washington DC. The group had been under surveillance, but on the 2nd of August 2004, the New York Times had actually published the man's name, citing Pakistani sources, and the leak had forced the police in Britain and Canada to make arrests before the investigations were fully complete. And then when the Luton cell was ended, one of the London bombers um, was sort of investigated briefly by MI5, but he, they determined that he was not really likely a threat anymore, um, and that he just wasn't watched any further. On the 12th of July, the West Yorkshire Police raided six properties in the Leeds area, homes in six areas and one the following day in Aylesbury. The police found a significant amount of explosive material in the Leeds raids and a controlled explosion was carried out on one of the properties and explosives were also found in the vehicle associated with Tanweer that was at a Luton railway station and that was also subject to a controlled explosion. In March of the following year, the police arrested three men in connection with the bombings. Two were arrested at Manchester Airport attempting to board a flight bound for Pakistan that afternoon and the third man in the Beeston area of Leeds at an address on the street where one of the suicide bombers had lived before the attacks. And on the 9th of May that year, the police made four more arrests. One of the people arrested was the widow of Mohammed Sadiq Khan, who they thought now was the ringleader. They were really sure that he was the key person of this. She was arrested for commissioning, preparing or instigating acts of terrorism, but was released on the 15th of May. So one of the people arrested at that time was Khalid Khalik. He was an unemployed single father of three and was charged on the 17th of July 2007 for possessing an Al-Qaeda training manual. 
And I didn't know this before, but conviction for possession of a document containing information likely to be useful to a person committing or preparing an act of terrorism carries a maximum 10-year jail sentence. And that's quite a loose definition. Yeah. So because what do you define as useful exactly, in preparing an act of exactly. terrorism? I thought that was a really, really good law that we yeah, have in place because he was possessing a training manual. That could be anything. Or you could have somebody who's got gone online and printed something out about how to put a bomb together. Yeah. A Jamaican-born man named Abdullah Al-Faisal was deported to Jamaica on the 25th of May 2006 after reaching the parole date in his prison sentence. He'd been found previously guilty of three charges of soliciting the murder of the Jews, Americans and Hindus, and two charges of using threatening words to incite racial hatred in 2003. It's been alleged that he was the one who influenced Jamaican-born Jermaine Lindsay to participate in the 7-7 bombings, but this hasn't been confirmed for definite. The Guardian newspaper reported on the 3rd of May 2007 that the police had investigated Mohammed Sadiq Khan twice during 2005. Apparently in January, the police had taken a statement from the manager of a garage in Leeds, which had loaned him a courtesy car while his vehicle was being repaired. And The Guardian also reported that on the afternoon of the 3rd of February, an officer from Scotland Yard's anti-terrorism branch had carried out inquiries with the company that had insured a car that Khan was seen driving about a year before. But nothing about these inquiries appeared in the report investigating the 7-7 attacks and Scotland Yard described the inquiries as routine. He had been briefly scrutinised by MI5, but they determined he was not likely a threat and he was not put under surveillance. The Daily Telegraph newspaper reported that radical Imam Anwar al-Alaki had inspired the bombers as they had transcribed lectures of al-Alaki while plotting the bombings and his materials were found in the possession of accused accomplices of the suicide bombers. He was actually killed by a US drone attack in 2011. In October 2010, an independent coroner's inquest of the bombings began. So this was not an inquest about the actual bombers because obviously... They're the ones to blame. They set off the explosives. And whilst they were trying to look into the reasons behind it, it was quite obvious that they were doing it from the standpoint of what they'd spoken about in their videos. This um, inquest was actually to consider how each victim had died and whether MI5, if it had worked better, could have prevented the attack. And also the emergency services responses. So I think when we're talking about the fact that... um, Khan had been scrutinised by MI5 and they didn't put him under surveillance. It's things like that that the UK government need to know that actually was MI5 doing its job properly. And also, up until that point, there probably hadn't been a terrorist attack on that scale, like you said, I think, you know, for probably 20 years. And the police now regularly do training exercises Mm -hmm. where they kind of storm into a shopping centre and they've got actors there playing the part of terrorists etc maybe that didn't happen then so maybe there was a slower response and lessons were learned off the back of this absolutely so lady justice hallett who we spoke about a couple of times when i was talking about the people who were affected she was appointed to hear the inquest the inquest was told that although the bombs went off at about 8.50 the emergency services only reached the stations at 9.12 But on May the 9th, 2011, the verdict was released and read in the Houses of Parliament that said the 52 victims would have died no matter what time the emergency services reached and rescued them. And Lady Justice Hallett also said that it was not right or fair to say that more attention should have been paid to the ringleader prior to the 7th of July. She also decided that there should not be a public inquiry. Wow, that's really, really unusual. So they were literally... Yes, the emergency services took that long, but a bit like you alluded to earlier, they had to get down into the tunnels. They had to deal with what they didn't know what happened either. They didn't know whether it was a bomb at first. The reports were very mixed. Actually, the victims would have died no matter what. They've also got to consider their own safety, so they'd have to do a risk analysis before they entered a situation like that. this is one of the things. A couple of times, I don't know how many of the firefighters or or the paramedics or anything... They were worried about going down because the train lines could have still been electrified and they were then trying to um, make sure that these had been turned off ready in readiness for them to go down and they were actually refusing to go down until they were explicitly told these are not alive any longer, which I think is completely, I, I completely valid. Yeah. Um, so one of the recommendations from the inquest was actually that the communication needs to be better between that, that 
as soon as there is an incident, those are turned off of live and you know that emergency service can safely go onto the tracks. Because all they would need to do, they would just need somebody in a control room mm-hmm. at the underground to communicate that to the control room for yeah. the emergency services. So that message could be given to all people that are exactly. then going to be going into that location. Exactly. And that wasn't something that I thought about at first when I was thinking about getting out of that underground train. You just want to get out and get walking. But you could be walking along an electrified track and that yeah. is, yeah... So the report provided nine recommendations to various bodies. The recommendations are available online, but these were some of the key points that I thought were particularly interesting. So MI5 had failed to realise that the suspects were important quickly enough. So they, the inquiry recommended that MI5 should improve the way it records decisions relating to suspect assessment. Um, like you said about, major incident training needed to be reviewed for all frontline staff especially those working on the underground it was recommended as well that a common initial rendezvous point was permanently staffed and advised to emergency services so there was no confusion about where people should go in an emergency which i think is always going to be impossible to specifically say because what if the bomb went off near to that emergency point but you could at least have a central point The Department of Health, the Mayor of London and the London's Resilience Team were told to review the capability and funding of medical emergency care in the city. And then there was also the recommendation around the um, whether or not the emergency services were told about the lives, uh, the line still being live. Now, I haven't done my usual like you did last week. Oh, you're not ending on a good note. I'm ending on a note which is a bit of a twist to the tale and actually one that we've probably commented about a couple of times it was reported in july 2011 that relatives of some of the victims of the bombings may have had the telephones accessed by the news of the world the news of the world the revelations added to existing controversy over the phone hacking by the tabloid newspaper and we've definitely talked about this in a case i, I know two. we have it. I, I can't think which one i reckon we could probably cover that as a, as a case yeah, to be honest because, because it's yeah. absolutely a disgusting part of our history I think I've thought of that before and I know Millie Dowler's family mm-hmm. had their phones hacked and received seven figures in compensation yeah. from News International who had done that but yeah I mean that was a massive scandal in the UK yeah. so the fathers of two of the victims one in the Edgware Road Blast and another at Russell Square told the BBC that police officers investigating the hacking scandal had warned them that their contact details were found on a target list and a number of survivors from the bombed trains revealed that police had warned them that their phones may have been accessed and their messages intercepted. In some cases, officers advised them to change their security codes and pins. And a former firefighter who helped injured passengers escape from Edgware Road said he had been contacted by police who were looking into the hacking allegations. So I just thought I was sorry to end on a sad note, but the news of the world hacking scandal just really pisses me off. Well, it ended that newspaper, didn't it? Yeah, good. Like, yeah, but all of these people whose tragedy was then being sort of exploited. Yeah, as if it wasn't bad enough that then, you know, had a, a gross invasion of privacy. Exactly. At such a horrific time. So there you go. That's the um, story of the July 7, 2005 bombings, otherwise known as 7-7 bombings. Mm. I don't know what else to say. I know, isn't it just absolutely horrific? Absolutely horrific. You know, fortunately, we've not had anything as bad as that since. Yeah. But we have seen attacks like the Westminster Bridge attack, which is pretty recent, where a number of people lost their lives, and Mm -hmm. it's just tragic. Yeah, it really is. And it's a bit different to some of the cases we've covered. You know, maybe I'll have to go back to something that doesn't end with a murder at the end just to. Do you know what I think it's time for? Oh, what's the a title? A good old for? robbery. Yeah, a good old heist or something. A heist, yeah. a robbery. I'm not saying they're victimless crimes at all, mm-hmm. but maybe just something without physical violence. Without an actual death. Yeah. Yeah, might be a good title. Because it's yeah. been dark, I think, you know, yeah. we've, we've done some really dark we episodes. What did I do last week? Nisha Patel Nasri. Nisha Patel Nasri, yeah, yeah. Horrific. Oh, a terrible, yeah. you know, woman murders inside her own home slash outside her own home. Yeah. But um, you'd buy her own husband. Yeah, that was absolutely terrible. Do you know what? There was a an advert for a TV program on. I think it was Investigation Discovery or something, and it literally it chilled me because it was like the person's at home alone and they just think they're in their house. And then she went to shut the fridge, and as the sh- door shut, there's like a man stood there. Oh, oh it freaks Isn't me out. Your worst I hate being home alone anyway. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I can't watch that program. But it was called something like Home Alone, and oh, 
horrible. But yeah. I think with um with one of the recent cases I covered as well, the Iceman Killer, mm-hmm. where a couple was shot dead in their own home. Obviously then did Nisha Patel Nasri. I've definitely in the last few days mm. they've almost consumed me a bit. And in the last few days I've really felt conscious um, of my own safety, particularly yeah. at home. You can't take things for granted. I mm-hmm. know it sounds, you know, preachy, but yeah, you do need to lock yeah. the doors and Absolutely. you really can't take it for granted. And on our Facebook group, which is quite a nice link to say to people, come join us on the Facebook group and chat, but there was um somebody had shared a post about um if I go missing, please know that I did not choose to like I would never go without talking to people. And I thought there's a number of our cases where we've talked about someone who's gone missing or you know, adults are allowed to go and choose to go missing, but I thought that was quite a telling sort of mm. post as well. I thought it was very sensible. Yeah. But yeah, let's let's end on a nicer note. So come join us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Come chat to us. You can also email us at info at seeingredpodcast.co.uk. You can. And I think I got that right this time. I hope so. And we do have people email us, so feel free to do that. We check that inbox every day. Um, and again, uh, thank you to our wonderful Patreon supporters. Yeah, thank you very much, guys. If anybody else would like to support us financially, you can do so by visiting patreon.com forward slash seeingredpodcast. Is that right? That's correct. I got it right. Um, you can sponsor us for, I think the lowest is about $3 a month if you'd like to support us that way. We'll obviously show you our thanks by sending you out some goodies as well. Yeah, and we've got different tiers. And depending on what tier you sign up for, you get different benefits. And we've got six bonus episodes on mm-hmm. there now. You can go back and listen. Yeah. So all that remains for us to say is don't have nightmares, <sighs> yep. please. And we will see you next week. See you next week. Bye. Bye.